Okay. Hi, everybody. We are live. This is UB. I'm here with Nina, and I think um, Mike will be joining us here shortly. Uh, so welcome back. This is another Black Voices Matter segment episode of the Choose Inclusion podcast. And today we have uh, someone who's become a really good friend over the last few months. Um, it's a local Colorado uh, powerhouse who uh, started her own organization uh, called Simone D. Ross LLC. She's the CEO and founder, and she's just um, a, a great voice in the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging space. Um, and we wanted to invite her so we could listen to what she's got to say about everything out right now. So, hello, Simone. Hi, thank you for having me. Always, always. So how, how's it going? How are you doing right now? You know, <laughs> that's such an incredibly loaded question. Um, I'm kind of reflecting on, I'm looking at the time, it's 322, um, and I'm reflecting on, you know, how, how I started my day. And to be completely transparent, it was... Um, a teary-eyed start because the same question was posed to me um, in, in a team meeting with, with one of my clients and um, everyone kind of round-robined and um, I just had, you know, I'm, I'm full, like I'm full of a variety of emotions. It's um, certainly moments of introspection about my own existence and experiences. Um, within America as a black woman, it's um, really, you know, thinking about how I show up, um, which then kind of pisses me off because um, with recognition that, that people of color, women, black women, we're, we're constantly critiquing and picking at ourselves about how we show up um, and what we could have done better um, because it's just painful to have the reality, you know, that within this existence that there probably isn't anything you could have done better. Um, it's that you're, you're trying to show up and be your best in a system that hates you. Right. <laughs> so it's that introspective, yeah. that introspection of over the years, the variety of ways I've shown up many times at my best and, and understanding that that's not good enough, not because my best isn't good enough, but because um, there are anti-Black people out there who I've engaged with, who've made decisions about my life, um, who hated me. Um, so, so thinking about that, um, then just a great deal of anger about that reality. I'm, I'm feeling that, and oddly, I'm feeling all those things today. Um, a great deal of anger about that reality. Um, and then the converse is a great deal of hope. Um, I have never heard white people say anti-black racism. I've never heard that come out of white people's mouths. I've, I've never heard white people say, I am an anti-racist or I want to work towards being a flagrant and flaming anti-racist. Um, 2015, 2016, when we had all the same stuff happening in America, white people weren't putting their bodies on the line for this cause. 
let alone their voices, let alone any level of um, economic sovereignty. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm feeling hopeful because what I do know is that although black voices need to be heard, black stories need to be shared um, and we need to work collectively in fixing this, the people who will champion dismantling all of the systemic things that got us here today are white people who get it. And I'm seeing a lot of those. So yeah, I'm, I'm introspective, I'm hopeful. Um, and certainly, certainly I'm angry. Um, and I'm just trying to energy manage to let that hopeful piece shine brighter than, than the anger. So, you know, I think you and I, uh, we met back in early March um, and we talked about anti-blackness and we talked about racism and we kind of, and it was just one of those conversations that, you know, you and I have been having these conversations for decades. Um, but yeah, all of a sudden it's become mainstream. I mean, what do you think is, is different about this time? Like, why is this time different than every other time that we've seen in the past? You know, I've pondered on that um, in a variety of circles of, of people and had some authentic conversation. Um, this is kind of like that great compounding in history where we've got this pandemic, so we're sheltering in place, we're still, we're at home. We, the only thing we really can consume currently is, is media and news. And that's actually really kind of the thing that's keeping us going and creating some level of connectivity to life outside of us. Um, however, at the point you can't go to work and go to the office, at the point that you can't shut down social media because that's the only way you kind of feel somewhat human when you're quarantined. And these are the things you're getting 24 seven, starting with Ahmaud Arbery, then moving into Central Park Amy, then moving to the brutal assassination of George Floyd. That's what you're getting consumptively 24 seven. You can't help, you can't help but feel that. You can't help but notice that. I think when cops were shooting unarmed black men, it was easy for the majority population to, to not feel that because although it was, was and is disgusting, abhorrent and gruesome, there is a shield between the person that's being shot, that gun and the cop to, to rationalize air quote that. However, when you see an unarmed black man in his most vulnerable state with a police officer's knee in his neck and you hear the audio of him gasping for his last air, then calling out for his mother, you don't have that shield. Then when you see the response at the highest level of office, the chief executor, and I lose that, use that term very loosely of the nation, dehumanizing, um, devaluing, not validating what happened, um, it makes you take pause to number one, say, I want to separate myself from those ideals. What I saw was wrong. And since it's not being told, or since we're not being told from the top down that it's wrong, you have a group of people saying, oh, hell no, I want to separate myself because I recognize that it's wrong. And number two, you have it being consumed. 
we can't go to the office. You can't take a vacation to, to turn it off. There's no off switch right now because this is all we have to consume. And, and we're at a different time and place where people want to figure out how to make the statement. I'm not, they want to say I'm anti-racist. And then the other piece too that I hold space for, which is mm -hmm. ridiculous to me, and I just want to say that, is I think white people had an excuse for eight years, right? To, to pacify supremacy because Barack Obama, a black man, held the highest seat in the world. Mm -hmm. And so white people had an opportunity to pacify their racism, to feel better about their supremacy, to feel better about this system that is rooted in extortion, exploitation, and racism. They could feel better about that for shy of a decade because without regard to all these things that were happening, white people at a minimum could rest at night and say, well, a black man's president, racism doesn't exist. My supremacy wasn't the ultimate op oppressor of your ability to break down barriers. But now that, that that shield again is gone, now that that pacifier has been taken, it's a very cruel reality um, of what our truth is. And um, I'm hopeful in seeing the mobilization of, of all people. But I truly believe that in order to dismantle this system effectively, the people who created this have to be at the forefront of dismantling it. Yeah, I completely agree. And, um, you know, it's, <laughs> I've heard different people talk about yeah, I'm glad you brought up the point about, you know, Barack Obama, because now that I've heard sort of the, the perspective that, you know, actually, if you think about it, what, what our current president is affording us to, the ability to do is finally confront all of this stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah. and so it's it's an interesting perspective to think about. I mean, does it mean that you know we we keep pouring salt in our wounds in November? I don't know, but I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? You know, at this point, what if we're going to progress as a nation, we've got to see a change in leadership. Um, is there a fix-all, a cure-all from who's the president of the United States? There never has been, there never will be. Um, but this has definitely um, caused the sick cancer that is racism to metastasize at a, at a very rapid rate. Um, and it's imperative that that be removed, right? Like that has got to go. Um, like I said, whomever's in office, until we confront these problems and until we're very honest about dismantling this system, um, dismantling this caste system, challenging the power dynamics that are at play every single day, until we get a little bit more courageous and brave about that, educated about that, and mobilize and move it, you know, the person who's sitting at the, in the White House, they're, they're not gonna be able to move the dial, but at the point that it does become this highly metastasizing disease, um, that's problematic. Um, it, it, it's highly problematic. And frankly, it's just, 
to see us back essentially where we were over 400 years ago and the fact that being one of the most powerful from a militarization standpoint, economic standpoint, um, one of the most powerful countries, <laughs> um, it, it's, it's abhorrent that our power is rooted in something as fictitious as race. Race isn't a thing. Ethnicity is a thing, but if you look at it sociologically, the fact that these power dynamics are built on something that doesn't even exist, and we as American people, being who we claim to be, have allowed this to run the way that we value ourselves, the way that we do business, the way that we advance economic opportunities, education, that's crazy because this is all built on something that isn't even a thing. Race as a, as a structure, it's not a thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting because a lot of the conversations have focused nationally, right? Like a lot of, of, have gone towards, you know, what is the president doing? I'm kind of curious, you're one of the few black people I know who's a Colorado native. Um, you know, how have you seen the problems, these systemic problems manifest itself in, in Colorado and in Denver? You know, Colorado, and really my perspective is more from a, a business perspective, somewhat a social perspective. Um, Colorado, Denver specifically, is an interesting place to do business in when you examine race in that we have this um, narrative that we want to tell ourselves and spin about us being this liberal place. Um, you know, I'm sure if you had to play a, a drinking game for how many times our white counterparts say, I don't see color, um, we would all be pretty faded. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's not the case. And this is specific to doing business in Colorado. What I have found is that it's 100% a good old boy system, that it's 100% a system where representation at corporate levels isn't a priority. Um, because it doesn't have to be a priority because we live in such a homogenous place to where businesses um, previously didn't have to look at the makeup of their C-suite or even board of directors because it wasn't a priority because there was so many white people here that creating a culture um, that would be equitable for people who are non-white um, wasn't a priority because they were just perfectly fine with perpetuating these business models that that didn't cultivate, retain, um, or even speak to the needs of more diverse populations. Um, and so I think that that's always been, I think it's always been an undercurrent. I certainly recognized when I was in my early thirties, it's weird to say I'm in my late thirties now, but I'm not 40 yet. So I'm still somewhat youthful, maybe, or maybe not. Um, you know, I knew in my early thirties, even maybe even late twenties that living here and being an executive here, I definitely had a glass ceiling um, and that the ideals of a meritocratic workforce in this city were absolutely not true um, because we weren't ready in business for, for intersectional workforces. We weren't willing to elevate professionals um, and retain those professionals um, at the highest level of business. Um, and so I, I don't 
know that that's changed. I actually made the conscious decision to exit corporate because I experienced um, damaging, grueling trauma um, being the only black woman in the C-suite um, and dealing with flagrant, flagrant bigotry. Um, the things that I was told were abhorrent. Um, and then after being told those things, having no allies, not even allyship in the form of we wanna abide by the law and not be an institution that supports racism. It was zero allyship. Um, and so I don't, I don't know that Denver has made any of those changes. I think it's, um, you know, I think it's great to see the national response from chief executors of large corporations, inclusive of VF Corp right here in, in Denver. That, that was a phenomenal statement they made from VF Corp to um, Nike, all, all the large companies. And I think the statement is powerful. I think it's impactful, but the statement be, needs to become actionable. And these organizations truly do need to create C-suites that are intersectional, that honor diversity, where we can see ourselves as consumers in their brands and in their service offerings. And so that's the next step. Then the next step after hitting send on that email is what are you doing to intentionally create intersectionality in your workforce? And I don't know if Denver's there. That was a long answer. I don't know if Denver's there. My prayer and my hope is that Denver will get there and they will get there with an authentic intentional soul and spirit because the world will pass us by if, if we as a city do not. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, I think we may get there faster than some for sure, but um, man, yeah, at the end of the day, like what do you have, what are the questions that your white friends are asking you right now? They've really centered around what can they do? They've been very vulnerable in expressing that they don't know what to do. Um, and you know, that's okay. That's better than not doing anything, right? Like it's better than not having the response. Um, you know, some white friends have expressed disappointment, particularly with white women, with the way white women show up in this nation and the way they weaponize whiteness and weaponize tears to ultimately manipulate everybody um, to progress their own personal interests, whatever they may be. And that has been a fascinating revelation in all of this. Um, and really I've seen authentic, authentic empathy um, from them. And, and that has been different, refreshing and interesting and I'm like, keep that same energy today, keep that same energy on November 3rd and keep that same energy throughout your lifetime and keep that same energy when child rearing. Because really I'm, I'm so activated right now because I have two kids and I don't want the CEO of a company telling my daughter, you need to smile more. You know, I don't want, um, my son to be called the N-word ever. I don't want my son to be assassinated by police. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, no, keep people keep the same energy. 
we, and I've told people, what we're seeing right now is the volcanic eruption of an extreme. And we should certainly be catalyzed by this extreme. However, what we cannot forget is the causality in this extreme. And that is that there are grave disparities in the opportunities given, the treatment of, the voices given to black people, their existence and their stories in this nation. There is a series of um, institutionalized racist systems that continually oppress black people. And that's just fact-based. And so although we are um, currently mobilized and passionate about an extreme event, an extreme, I should say, act of terror that happened in this nation, what we can't forget is the causality. And the causality is this system that's been built and that needs to be blown up and completely dismantled. You know, yesterday I got the opportunity to listen to one of your amazing trainings about intersectionality. And I thought you brought up this really great point about the difference between allyship and what that means and, and being an accomplice. And I think that for all the listeners who are trying to figure out what can they do, I think it's a really important distinction. I was hoping you could explain that, um, that piece to our listeners. Yeah, you know, I think at this point, we are in a state of emergency, right, in, in this nation. And I think we need to recognize what it is. And when you're in a state of emergency, you have to act differently than you would if you could lackadaisically, you know, explore and, and all that good stuff. And so I think allyship is not to be, um, you know, we can't demean anything about allyship because it's necessary. Um However, we need more than allyship, right? And so allyship really is, um, you know, where you're like, I, I own and I recognize my privilege. It makes me less vulnerable to these systemic um, pieces of oppression. Um, and so I'm going to contribute my privilege to this movement. Um, you know, I want to be inclusive and, and things like that. That's allyship and that's good. There's a place for that. And I think it's also imperative to understand that allies, you've quickly got to become accomplices um, because we're in a state, we are in a national emergency um, and we need to deploy all of the troops towards the, the, the goal of dismantling supremacy in this nation. And in order to do that, you have to be an accomplice. And an accomplice is someone who has done the work around empathy and really being able to see, feel and understand the plight, the hurt, all of that of black people um, and saying, you know what? I stand with you hand in hand, linked arm in arm. Accomplices um, say, your oppression is my oppression. I too am George Floyd. I too am Ahmaud Arbery. I too am Mike Brown. I too am Trayvon Martin. I too am Sandra Bland. I too am Breonna Taylor. It's sick that I even have all these names and the list goes on and on, but they say, I too am that person and that person is me and I'm standing against this. Um, it's saying, I, I am a bold crusader for social justice, not just, oh yeah, well, I know, I, I'm gonna talk to a few people. No, it's, it is saying loudly, fuck that. This is my problem. 
this is our problem and I'm going to fix this problem. And, and there's absolutely a difference between the two. And again, no knock on allyship. I think it's a part of the process, right? We spoke a couple of weeks ago about there's kind of phases, if you will, you know, um, a good friend and colleague, um, Jenna Santi presented some materials and she said, you know, there's would be allyship where it's like, oh, I think I'm an ally. Um, but I don't think I benefit from privilege where you're just blind to your ignorance, um, where you are still condone or sometimes participate in offensive behaviors that's, or become very defensive when challenged. That's, that's would be allyship. Allyship is certainly turning that, pivoting that and, and saying, okay, let me, let me own this. Let me understand that it doesn't feel good to know that I sometimes have weaponized my whiteness, um, but the conversation's not about me and I wanna use my, my privilege. Um, to try and progress this movement, but being a, an accomplice is throwing, getting on those front lines, putting up, applying pressure to state representatives, congressional representatives to pass bills, i.e. House Resolution 40. Um, my good friend Leslie Harrod is also running some legislation to do some more research on and in making this a health crisis, uh, racism. It's it's pushing on other senators who are representatives that wouldn't vote on that and, and standing there saying, nope, this is our legislation. This is not black legislation. Accomplices are out there sacrificing their bodies on the front lines, just as black and brown people are for these causes. Accomplices are the ones who are out there saying, you know what, I'm not going to accept these micro inequities. I'm seeing that you're inflicting upon this black woman who's, who's in our C-suite, what you're saying is it's racist. And I stand with this person, a racist uh, microaggression against this woman is the same against me. And we're both gonna go and file a complaint with the EEO or human resources to ensure that you don't pepper our leadership at this corporation with your racism. And, and that's where we have to go, right? That's a hundred percent where we have to go. It's saying to family members, I had no idea until I started this week um, having um, these very fruitful conversations with white people. I, you know, they're like, there's so many racist jokes that are told at our dinner table at Thanksgiving. And they're like, it's, 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 I'm ashamed of it, Simone. They were like, but now I'm going to stop it. It's like, hell yeah, stop it. And let them know that you don't want to raise your kids. I mean, can you imagine that? You don't want to raise your kids to think that any hint of racism is normal. It's the most abnormal thing that we could be doing. And it is a hundred percent our way of being. And so it's really taking those pieces, stripping away those parts and saying, no, that racist joke was about me too, because this isn't, I'm an anti-racist accomplice in this movement. And, and I think we've, it's a state of emergency. We got to get there. We got to move to that place. One, one last question. What, where do you, what do you see in a year from now? What is, what does all this look like? You know, in an, in an ideal world, we would be able to be sitting across from each other face to face. <laughs> together, uh, right. Perhaps with sharing, a whiskey, with exactly, a whiskey. Sharing, sharing in a libation. Um, no, uh, in a, in a year from now, we need to, I want to see legislation. Um, just as there was legislation created to oppress people of color, there needs to be legislation to dismantle the oppression of people of color, right? 
just as policing was initially created out of a slave system, that's where policing came from, right? There needs to be a nut yeah. that needs to be dismantled. And we need to see gains, which are very, very, we can start doing that stuff now. We can get some bills sponsored, right? So I need to see legislation just as ra racism has been legislated. This system has been heavily regulated to, to oppress right. black people. And it's not, it's, that's just facts. That is a hundred percent facts. And so we need to start dismantling that. And we need to start legislating anti-racist behavior. Um, so I want to see that. I want to see this continued energy around corporate systems, um, boldly and loudly rejecting racism. But I also want to see people being intentional about diversifying their C-suites, diversifying their boards of directors, and understanding how to reacculturate their entire ecosystem to be a safe space for intersectional contributors to their workforce. That can happen in a year with intentionality. That can absolutely happen in a year. Right. Um, you know, I wanna see more marches and demonstrations for everybody because again, it's about being an accomplice. Certainly when you see injustice in the face of um, a terrorist act against a, a black person speak out, but if the same is happening with an LGBTQ plus person, I wanna see the same, us all saying, no, this is our issue. And we will not tolerate these behaviors, not in our nation. Um, and so, yeah, I, I definitely wanna see this energy um, perpetuated. And I wanna be re-energized time and time again, because it's a fight. Um, I wanna continue to be re-energized and feel hopeful that we are slowly piece by piece dismantling this fictitious thing we've created but decide to live by in this nation yeah huge that's amazing i totally agree and i think i think all signs are pointing to that so uh we'll see and obviously we will continue to do our part um in any way shape or form to be an accomplice so thank you simone as always um it's always great to hear your voice. Yeah, well, thank, thank you. you. And we got your back on whatever you need from us too. Oh, well, I appreciate that. You guys, you guys are tremendous partners and the work you do, I admire. And you know that I'm also here for you. Just, I'm really just a phone call away. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. So uh, hopefully soon I can try that new doorbell. <laughs> <laughs> no, please. Come on. I've got cocktails. <laughs> done and done. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Nina. Thank you, audience. Um, we'll be back tomorrow with um, some, some more amazing Black voices, and we hope you listen in. Take care, everybody. Take care, everyone.